This is Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. We're finishing up chapter seven, The Curse of Machinery. Not all inventions and discoveries, of course, are labor-saving machines. Some of them, like precision instruments, like nylon, lucite, plywood, and plastics of all kinds, simply improve the quality of products. Others, like the telephone or the airplane, perform operations that direct human labor could not perform at all. Still others bring into existence objects and services such as x-rays, radios, and synthetic rubbers that would otherwise not even exist. But in the foregoing illustration, we have taken precisely the kind of machine that has been the special object of modern technophobia. It is possible, of course, to push too far the argument that machines do not on net balance throw men out of work. It is sometimes argued, for example, that machines create more jobs than would otherwise have existed. Under certain conditions, this may be true. They can certainly create enormously more jobs in particular trades. The 18th century figures for the textile industries are a case in point. Their modern counterparts are certainly no less striking. In 1910, 1,400,000 persons were employed in the United States in the newly created automobile industry. In 1920, as the product was improved and its costs reduced, the industry employed 250,000. In 1930, as this product improvement and cost reduction continued, employment in the industry was 380,000. In 1940, it had risen to 450,000. By 1940, 35,000 people were employed in making electric refrigerators and 60,000 were in the radio industry. So it has been in one newly created trade after another, as the invention was improved and the cost reduced. There is also an absolute sense in which machines may be said to have enormously increased the number of jobs. The population of the world today is three times as great as in the middle of the 18th century, before the Industrial Revolution had got well underway. Machines may be said to have given birth to this increased population, for without the machines, the world would not have been able to support it. Two out of every three of us, therefore, may be said to owe not only our jobs, but our very lives to machines. Yet, it is a misconception to think of the function or result of machines as primarily one of creating jobs. The real result of the machine 
is to increase production, to raise the standard of living, to increase economic welfare. It is no trick to employ everybody, even or especially in the most primitive economy. Full employment, very full employment, long, weary, backbreaking employment is characteristic of precisely the nations that are most retarded industrially. Where full employment already exists, new machines, inventions, and discoveries cannot until there has been time for an increase in population, bring more employment. They are likely to bring more unemployment, but this time I am speaking of voluntary and not involuntary unemployment. Because people can now afford to work fewer hours, while children and the overaged no longer need to work. What machines do, to repeat, is to bring an increase in production and an increase in the standard of living. They may do this in either of two ways. They do it by making goods cheaper for consumers, as in our illustration of the overcoats. Or they do it by increasing wages because they increase the productivity of the workers. In other words, they either increase money wages or by reducing prices, they increase the goods and services that the same money wages will buy. Sometimes they do both. What actually happens will depend in large part upon the monetary policy pursued in a country. But in any case, machines, inventions, and discoveries increase real wages. A warning is necessary before we leave this subject. It is precisely the great merit of the classical economists that they looked for secondary consequences. That they were concerned with the effects of a given economic policy or development in the long run and on the whole community. But it was also their defect that in taking the long view and the broad view, they sometimes neglected to take also the short view and the narrow view. They were too often inclined to minimize or to forget altogether the immediate effects of developments on special groups. We have seen, for example, that the English stocking knitters suffered real tragedies as a result of the introduction of the new stocking frames one of the earliest inventions of the Industrial Revolution. But such facts and their modern counterparts have led some writers to the opposite extreme of looking only at the immediate effects on certain groups. Joe Smith is thrown out of a job by the introduction of some new machine. Keep your eye on Joe Smith, these writers insist. Never lose track of Joe Smith. But what they then proceed to do is to keep their eyes only on Joe Smith and to forget Tom Jones. 
who has just got a new job in making the new machine, and Ted Brown, who has just got a job operating one, and Daisy Miller, who can now buy a coat for half what it used to cost her. And because they think only of Joe Smith, they end by advocating reactionary and nonsensical policies. Yes, we should keep at least one eye on Joe Smith. He has been thrown out of a job by the new machine. Perhaps he can soon get another job, even a better one. But perhaps also he has devoted many years of his life to acquiring and improving a special skill for which the market no longer has any use. He has lost this investment in himself, in his old skill, just as his former employer perhaps has lost his investment in old machines or processes suddenly rendered obsolete. He was a skilled workman and paid as a skilled workman. Now he has become overnight an unskilled workman again and can hope for the present only for the wages of an unskilled workman because the one skill he had is no longer needed. We cannot and must not forget Joe Smith. He is one of the personal tragedies that, as we shall see, are incident to nearly all industrial and economic progress. To ask precisely what course we should follow with Joe Smith, whether we should let him make his own adjustment, give him separation pay or unemployment compensation, put him on relief, or train him at government expense for a new job, would carry us beyond the point that we are here trying to illustrate. The central lesson is that we should try to see all the main consequences of any economic policy or development, the immediate effects on special groups and the long run effects on all groups. If we have devoted considerable space to this issue, it is because our conclusions regarding the effects of new machinery inventions and discoveries on employment, production, and welfare are crucial. If we are wrong about these, there are few things in economics about which we are likely to be right. That's the end of chapter seven. Next time we'll be in chapter eight spread the work schemes.